please be seated and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20 as we continue working our way through uh, the book of Genesis and the narrative in particular of the life of Abraham. Uh, Abraham, uh, one of the things we've observed about uh, this, this record of Abraham's life is how realistic it is. Uh, you would think that Abraham being really the preeminent Old Testament covenant head would be portrayed in, uh, in terms of just perfection. Uh, but instead, what we find is Abraham has his good days and his bad days, uh, days in which he, uh, he demonstrates profound faithfulness and days in which we are left scratching our heads trying to figure out how he could possibly have justified what he has done. Uh, we find in Genesis 20 this morning, we come to the narrative of, uh, of Abimelech taking Sarah, thinking that she is merely the sister of Abraham. It's actually the second time this has happened, only it wasn't Abimelech, it was Pharaoh. Otherwise, the chapter in some senses feels like an, an absolute carbon copy of the previous incident. And I've got bad news for you. Isaac's going to do the exact same thing to Abimelech again later. Uh, and so this seems to be a family problem, doesn't it? We see this morning... Uh, Abraham in, in his fallibility. Uh, we're also going to see that nonetheless he is not rejected by God, and, and we'll learn that, that Abraham's role in the text, though he, he uh, foreshadows Christ, he's a, a type of Christ, he, he tells us, he teaches us things about Christ. Sometimes uh, he does that by his positive example and sometimes by his negative. We're going to see how Sarah in the text today anticipates the church, how she is a, a foreshadowing of the church, and we learn about the church and who we are and what we are to Christ because of the place that Sarah holds in the text here. And so uh, as we uh, get ready to, to read the text this morning, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that your, your word is, uh, is so full of realism, uh, the subtleties and the difficulties of telling the story as it unfolded. Father, we thank you that even as the, the story of Abraham's life unfolded in history, you were ordaining it in such a way uh, and preserving it in such a way that we have come to know not only about Abraham and Sarah, but about Christ and his church. And so this morning we pray, Father, that we would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened and built up by your word as your spirit uh, is at work in and through that word. Uh, Father, I pray that you would you know, meet us here today, despite my own weakness, despite my own frailty and my own sinfulness, Father. Uh, though I am but a sheep myself, I pray that you would be at work in the preaching of the word for all of our good and for the kingdom and ultimately for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. 
Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm not going to bring it into the sermon today, but I have to point out uh, there, there had to have been some cheekiness on the part of uh, Abimelech when he says to Sarah there at the end, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Uh, there's got to be a bit of a twinkle in his eye if he's laughing about it at this point. He's probably still not laughing about what just happened. Uh, what a, uh, a, a bizarre uh, passage here. Abraham, who at this point, but perhaps if, if we really were determined to make excuses for Abraham the first time this happened, we might say, well, it, it was early on. There were so many demonstrations of God's love and his faithfulness to Abraham that were yet to come. But at this point, we are nearing the end of Abraham's narrative. We're nearing the end of Abraham's life. Abraham is, is 100 years old at this point, and go over and over again, God has demonstrated his faithfulness and made promises to Abraham so that we come to this, and there's absolutely no basis whatsoever for even extending any kind of, to be honest with you, understanding of Abraham and what he's done here, except for this very important fact that we do the same thing, right? Every single time we sin, having heard the promises of God, having known God's love and His faithfulness to us, every single time that we sin, it is an inexplicable act of faithlessness. This morning, there are three things I want to, to get to in the text, three lessons that we see here. The first is that at our best, 
we are sinners saved by grace. At our best, we are sinners saved by grace. The church is a priceless bride. Our second point this morning, the church is a priceless bride. And finally, Christ is a perfect husband. Christ is a perfect husband. First, at our best, we are sinners saved by grace. Abraham is not a good example in these verses of how it is that we are to live. Nor does Abraham fulfill his calling here and anticipate the work of Christ the Messiah who's promised and who is coming. Instead, we're actually going to learn about Christ in today's text by the contrast created in the way that Abraham behaves. There can be no justification for Abraham's actions. His lie, since that's what a half-truth is, is a faithless act. He's failing to trust that God will protect him in these circumstances that he finds himself It's been less than a year. In fact, it's probably been less than three months since three men showed up at the tent and one of them said to Abraham and to Sarah, I'll be back a year from now and you will have the son who is promised. Less than three months since a personal visitation. Less than three months since the the miraculous deliverance of Lot and the destruction and God's wrath of Sodom and Gomorrah, less than three months. And Abraham's traveled a bit, and they're still doing this vaudeville thing where they say to anybody who asks, we're brother and sister. Such a a strange way to act. It's been an unprecedented run of victories and triumphs in the life of Abraham. It's been 15 years since the last time in the text Abraham acted in a way that was faithless. And so much has happened in the meantime. So much that should have strengthened him. But now, with a covenant child coming in less than a year, he resorts to his old fears and his old sinful patterns. We've seen this mess before. You see, for all God's goodness to Abraham and for all of Abraham's faithful acts, he's still a sinner, saved by grace, and he will continue to wrestle with sin until the Lord takes him home. In Abraham, we don't have a perfect man, nor do we have an indifferent sinner, but instead an imperfect man who is being perfected by God. And that is who we are, Christian. Abraham is a type, a foreshadowing of the Messiah, but in passages like this, we are clearly taught he is not that Messiah. We're looking for another. And in this passage, we are taught that this is is what it looks like to live the Christian life. Spiritual highs and spiritual lows. And the, the, the growth that we experience in Christ-likeness and in holiness is not graphed on a, a perfectly uh, upward, only one direction, only getting better and better and more and more like Christ. But some days we do things that even we ourselves think, where did that come from? Where did that faith come from? I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. That's what I'm supposed to do and say, but I didn't think I had it in me. And we can find ourselves sometimes almost as quickly as we can turn around. Saying, where in the world did that come from? 
How could I have said such a thing? How could I have done such a thing? We find ourselves like Peter, don't we? One moment saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the next moment saying, hush, Christ, you will not die. In one moment hearing from our Lord and Savior, flesh has not revealed this to you, but the Spirit of God has revealed this to you. And in the next moment, get behind me, Satan. This is the Christian life. And it's no excuse. We, we don't take this reality of the Christian life and then shrug and say, well, it doesn't matter, I guess. I, I'll just go do whatever I want to do and it's all taken care of. But what we shouldn't do is despair either. As we wage war, to use Paul's language, as we wage war against the flesh, and we, we see by the grace of God victories against that flesh as we put to death that flesh and we resist temptation and yet we also see failures. We also experience those moments, those days where we are so ashamed of ourselves. And in those moments, it's, it's entirely too easy to, to let the thought begin to creep in. Maybe I'm not his. Maybe I don't belong to Him. Maybe I don't believe the things that I thought I believed. It's a tremendous mercy to us that we have the, the true story of Abraham. Not a man who can only ever do right, but a man who is at the head of the greatest biblical covenant in all of Scripture. And as he nears the end of his life, does this. Again, it's not even a new startling sin, but the same old problem. Listen, here's, here's the good news, brothers and sisters. If you are trusting in Christ for your salvation, if you are grieving your sin, you acknowledge that you are a sinner, and you long for the day when that sin will finally be put away. When you will no longer desire anything contrary to what God Himself desires. Then like Abraham, your sins are forgiven. Like Peter, your sins are forgiven. This is a great comfort to us. It, it not only should relieve us of the, the despair and the doubt that comes in the midst of our sin. But it should embolden us. As we go out into the world to live the Christian life, it is as though we are soldiers on the battlefield, and though we can be shot, and though we can stumble, we cannot be kept down, but continue to rise up and advance on the enemy. Can you imagine what an army of soldiers would be like if they knew that nothing could stop them? Brothers and sisters, nothing can stop us. We might fail. We might stumble. We might sin, but in Jesus Christ, all of the, the wrath and justice of God has already been executed against that sin. So that when we fail, we turn to our Father and we say, I repent, I'm sorry. And, and he says, get up, child. 
Go on. All is forgiven in Christ. Our sin has been put away in Christ, and this, this ought to be a great peace, a source of great peace to us. It ought to be an encouragement to us. It should also embolden us, as I said, to pursue righteousness. One of the, the things that is so galling in today's narrative is not just the offense against God, but the way in which Abraham's behavior destroys his witness. Abimelech may acknowledge that, that there's a God and that he is powerful. Abimelech may have an appropriate fear of this God, and he may accept, because he has no real choice, that Abraham is in fact a prophet. And despite the fact that it's Abraham's sin that put him in this mess, it's Abraham's prayer that's going to deliver him from it. But one has to wonder if Abimelech has walked away from this incident thinking to himself, what a wonderful God and what wonderful people. You see, this is one of the, the things that, that we have to take into consideration with respect to our sin. Yes, it is put away. No, we should not despair. But one of the reasons that we don't then shrug and just go about our lives, living them however we want, and sinning and not caring about it, is because we are a testimony in the world. When we go out into the world and we live as the world does, and we do not pursue righteousness, and we do not exemplify Christ-likeness, we, we call into question the truth of the message that we proclaim, and the goodness of the God who is saving us and who we represent in the world. Now, the good news is, even then, there's something that we can do to recover that testimony, and that is to repent, not only to God, but to those against whom we sin. It's to acknowledge to those that we sin against not just in the church, but in our neighborhoods and at work and everywhere else in the world that we go to pursue that righteousness, but where we fail to be quick to acknowledge it. How counterculture is that? I've talked about this before, right? We've got books like Radical, right? Uh, Christians, uh, evangelicals want to be radical in their Christian walk. But listen, one of the ways we can be radical is by having the humility to admit when we have sinned against our neighbor. This is how we recover our testimony. We show them that we are grieved by the fact that we've done it. If it's possible to make amends, we make amends. Our sin has been put away in Christ. Thanks be to God. And so, brothers and sisters, let's pursue righteousness, knowing that we can't fail, repenting when we do stumble. The second this morning, the church is a priceless bride. Now, if you've been with us for very long, what I'm doing here in the text won't come as a surprise to you. In fact, I hope you're, you're getting better and better at doing this yourself. But it does take a, a little bit of a of effort, if you're not used to this, to look at a story like this and say, Sarah is the church. It sounds like something that might easily be made up, but Sarah is, in fact, a type 
uh, a foreshadowing of the church inasmuch as Abraham is a type of Christ and Sarah is his bride. And Scripture calls the church the bride of Christ. Paul himself teaches this, this very thing, in Galatians 4. He says that Sarah is a type or allegory of the heavenly Jerusalem and the mother of us all who are in Christ, that heavenly Jerusalem that is the church. Listen to what Paul says. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. That is the earthly Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, Paul says, these women are two covenants. He goes on to identify Hagar as the Mosaic covenant, the covenant from Mount Sinai. He doesn't say it explicitly, but it's clear from the context that the other covenant is the covenant of grace. And Sarah is the representative of that covenant. Sarah is the church. Sarah represents the people of God. John in Revelation says something similar. Listen to this. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 is the church. The passage goes on to teach. The church is the bride of Christ. What do we do then? Now, what do we learn of the church, the people of God from Sarah in this passage? Abimelech pays a tremendous price for the sake of Sarah and her honor. Notice at the uh, end of our chapter what, what Abimelech does in order to communicate the profound value of Sarah and the value of her honor. He gives sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants. He says to Abraham, her husband, live wherever you will in our land. And he says to Sarah, I've given a thousand pieces of silver. Several commentaries that I read this week said that the typical bride price in this place and time was about 50 pieces of silver. He's given 20 times the bride price to give Sarah back to Abraham. And he tells us himself, all of this is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. We not only see the value of Sarah in what Abimelech must do in order to restore her to Abraham, but we see the the words of God himself at the beginning of the chapter when he comes to, Bim, to Abimelech and he has to this has to be one of the most terrifying moments in all of Scripture. In verse 3, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Behold, you are a dead man. And in the intervening 
period here, we find out towards the end of the chapter, God has closed all of the wombs in Abimelech's household and among his people. God pronounces a death sentence on Abimelech for even accidentally threatening the bride of Abraham and the mother of the promise. When Abraham fails to act as Christ acts, God intervenes decisively. And he prevents also Abimelech from sinning against Sarah. He, he intervenes supernaturally and tells Abimelech this. Abimelech says, I, I haven't touched her, I promise. And God says, I know you haven't. I'm the reason you haven't. I kept you from sinning against me. And so we see the value of Sarah expressed here in God's threat, his death threat against Abimelech, and in his supernatural action to preserve Sarah, and in the price that must be paid by Abimelech in order to restore Sarah. All of this an indication of the value of the church, the bride of Christ. Now, the, the final proof that we're on the right track is going to come in our last point this morning. So hang on. We'll get there in just a moment. But Sarah represents the church here and the value and the importance of Sarah and the necessity of defending and protecting Sarah. All of this teaches us about the church and about God's care for the church. The picture that begins to form is of a bride of tremendous value. It's not an inherent value. It's not that there was something about Sarah in and of herself that gave her this value. Certainly, she's, she's got all of the value that human dignity affords, but there's something more, something much, much more. And that is who God has said she is. God, having established the value of Sarah, her worth will not be moved. The church is of infinite value to God because He has declared it to be so, not only by His word, but by His action in sending His Son and in Jesus Christ who has given His life for the church. The life of Christ establishes the value of His people. And that's us. I, it would be weird. We're not going to do it. Um, but I almost just want to say, let's just take 10 minutes and just be quiet and meditate on this truth. God has declared that His church is priceless to him. And we are that church. He sent his son to die for the church. This ought to be a comfort for us. God will not cast us away. He will not abandon us. Sarah gets as far away, not by her own doing, but she ends up as far away from any place of security that she could possibly get. She has been brought into the household of another man. 
And yet in that household, God has defended her. He has protected her. And from that household, he retrieves her. And we get this same imagery, don't we? In the Gospels, in Matthew, when, when Christ says that what he's doing is he's on a rescue mission, that he's binding the strong man so that he can rob his house, and we are what is robbed from the strong man. We are those that Christ delivers from Satan. God will not cast us away. He will not abandon us. In, in the same way that He has declared our value in the death of Christ, we must ask, as the New Testament does, having done that for sinners and enemies, Paul says in Rome, Romans. Having done that, will He now abandon us? Who can bring any charge against God's elect, Paul says in Romans 8. It's Jesus Christ who has died and who intercedes for us. What a great source of comfort for us, brothers and sisters. Christ has declared that this is our value. God will not cast us away. He will not abandon us, though it may seem at times as though He's not near, though we may wonder where He is and why difficult and terrible things happen to us and to those we love. This is only how things seem. Put your confidence not in how things seem, but how God has said that they are. How things seem is subjective. We don't always understand. We don't know how we got to where we are. We don't know how we're going to get out of it. We don't know why God has allowed it. But there's a great deal we don't know. What we know is what God has said. And He has told us that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And so put your confidence not in how things seem, but in how God has said that they are. We are loved by Christ. I have more to say on that point, but I am already running late, so I'm going to move on to our final point this morning. Christ is a perfect husband. Abraham actually shows us Christ in this passage, not by his good example, but by his bad example. He throws Christ's perfection into clearer view by contrast with his own failure here as a husband. Look at, uh, at what Abraham says when Abimelech asks him, what in the world were you thinking? What, why would you do this to us? And he says in verse 11, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. They will kill me because of my wife. Abraham says to Sarah, before they ever leave home, this is the kindness that you must do for me. What we have in Jesus Christ is one who comes and says, this is the kindness I will do for you. And he comes expressly on the mission to die. Because of his bride. This is who Jesus Christ is in the world and in history. 
and in all of redemption. He is the husband who came and instead of saying to his bride, you're going to need to do me a favor, otherwise I might have to die for you. And he comes and he says, I'm going to do you this favor. I am going to die for you. I came to lay down my life for the bride. And for this reason, John in Revelation calls the church the wife of the Lamb. It's a little expression that might be overlooked. Christ is the Lamb throughout Revelation. We know that He's died for us. But look at how He says this. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Why the wife? Why the Lamb? Because the relationship of Jesus Christ to his people is that of a husband who dies for his wife. Christian, be encouraged. If Christ did not abandon us in death, he will not do so in life. But instead, he intercedes for us. He lives to intercede for us. Matthew's gospel ends with the promise that Christ makes, I will be with you to the end. And so we have this great encouragement that Christ is a husband to us who has gone to the very end for our sake. Christ has died for us. There is an imperative here for us this morning, husbands. It's an imperative that only flows from that indicative, that truth, that Jesus Christ is this kind of husband to us. And we have it from Paul's own teaching that there's an imperative, a command that flows from that truth. When he says to husbands in Ephesians 5, love your wife as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. Husbands, most of us will never have the opportunity to physically die for our wives. But we are called to lay down our lives every day. We, we are to live selflessly with respect to our wives. The good news is that Christ has given us this great example, and not only this great example, He's not only shown us what it looks like, but He's given us His Spirit and that spirit living in us enables us to live as we should and even works repentance in us when we don't. And so husbands, I would encourage you, even as Paul does in Ephesians, to live selflessly with your wife and towards your wife. We have in the passage today uh, such a great example of God's love for his people, the pricelessness of his bride, Christ's willingness, not only willingness, it's not as though Christ came to check things out and see what needed to be done and discovered when he got here, well, it looks like I'm going to have to die, but he came from the Father down from heaven for the express purpose of dying for his bride, a bride that we know from the Old Testament, was busy committing adultery, in rebellion against him, and yet he loved us. Listen, 
If Christ loved us then, now that his spirit is in us and he is perfecting us for the day of his return, how could he possibly love us less? This is good news for the church. It's good news for God's people. And it's a source of great thanksgiving for us. Let's pray.